Luke chapter 7, <laughs> verses 24 to 35. When John's messengers had gone... Wait, do I have that right? I do have that right. Okay. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before me. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating, for John, excuse me, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This was the word of God. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, we know that you are sovereign and answer prayers in your timing. Your answers are always right, always perfect, and always what we need. But in our immaturity, we often struggle with this. We demand more and more when we don't get our way. We become angry or cold. So, Father, I pray this morning that you would give us joyful contentment. I pray that we would trust you for who you are and what you've already done. Because we have been saved through Christ, we should be the most joyful and content people who have ever walked the earth, not proud or arrogant. So with this truth in mind, Father, I pray for opportunities to share this good news. I pray for more opportunities with our children, our friends, co-workers, family members who do not know you, that they would hear the gospel and be saved. For the sick and those struggling around us, I pray for your comfort and peace to be upon them as we continue to ask for healing. For those in unhappy and struggling marriages, I pray for restoration. Father, we lift up our government leaders this morning, from local city council members here in Roseville to the highest of offices in this nation. I pray for their salvation, the ability to lead well, to keep us in your peace. Father, I pray for the children in the classrooms this morning and those staying here in service. I pray they would, not, they would never know a day that they did not love you. I ask you to save them at an early age. Finally, this morning, we pray for Jason, Kenny, and all the other pastors around the world that are using, um, or that are going to be preaching to the lost. Give them wisdom and clarity of thought so that the gospel may go forth. Pray we would be encouraged this morning Father, give us humility to listen when we are challenged. In your son's name we pray. Amen.
So Greg's reading of scripture was strategic. Every one of you was paying rapt attention, which is exactly what we wanted to have happen. So perfect. Um, with Easter next Sunday, I wanted to spend some time today focusing, sitting under the gospel, and who better to preach that to us than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So if you haven't already, please turn to Luke 7, Luke chapter 7. Uh, our text is 24 to 25, but we're going to start by looking at verses 18 to 23 as necessary context. Um, Fortunately, I don't have to do a whole lot of explaining of those verses. A few months ago, too, I want to say, uh, Dr. Gonzalez, a guest preacher here, came and preached a sermon on those verses. Um, so I'm going to read them and then kind of recap a little bit of what he said as we go into our text this morning. So verses 18 to 23, the disciples of John reported all of these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, are you the one who has come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And in that hour, he, Jesus, healed many, of, uh, many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers, lepers, not leopards, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So when Dr. Gonzalez came and preached on this passage, he told us that John the Baptist is in prison at this point in time. Uh, he is experiencing misgivings, some doubts as to whether or not Jesus is actually the Messiah. So he sends his disciples to Jesus to ask him plainly, are you or are you not the one? And John's disciples arrive at the very moment that Jesus is performing miracles. And not just any miracles, but specifically those that were prophesied in the Old Testament as signs of the Messiah. Jesus was performing the works that the Messiah is supposed to do. So Jesus points John through his disciples to those very works, to those very miracles. He tells John's disciples to go back to the Baptist and tell him Jesus is doing those things that the Messiah has been prophesied to do. Now it's probable that John, like many people in his day, had a bit of a misconception as to what the Messiah was supposed to do when he came. Uh, that explains, I think, why he of all people is sitting in prison with doubts. And so Jesus isn't just pointing John to himself. He's also correcting some misunderstandings that John may have had. And this is a loving and gracious thing for Jesus to do. He doesn't attack John for his unbelief. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't demand that John, his cousin, be better. He gently corrects his misunderstandings that may exist and reassures him by pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ and saying that the Messiah has come. But that's not all that Jesus does here. It is not an accident that John's disciples arrive at the exact time that Jesus is performing these miracles. It is not an accident that Jesus is surrounded by a crowd of people when this happens. And it is not an accident that Jesus talks to John's disciples in front of the crowd as opposed to leading them away to a private place. Jesus is a master evangelist. He sees an opportunity here, and he's not going to let it go to waste. His words in verse 22 to John's disciples are not solely for John's benefit. They are for the benefit of the crowd as well. 
Jesus is not only reassuring John, he is also providing testimony, clear testimony to everyone who overheard the conversation. He is making a clear, definitive declaration of himself to John, to John's disciples, to the people, and frankly, us today. In doing so, Jesus is drawing a line in the sand. Everyone who hears his words in verse 22 has to decide whether or not they are going to believe who Jesus said he, he just claimed to be. They have to decide whether they're going to step over the line in faith or whether they're going to remain on the other side in unbelief. And our passage this morning, verses 24 to 35, really can be summarized as Jesus pushing the crowd of people to pick a side. In our text, Jesus makes two statements. In verses 24 to 28, we see the first statement in which Jesus both reaffirms his position as Messiah of Israel, but also explains to the people their desperate need for a savior. His second statement is in 31 to 35. Because unbelief persists, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that any unbelief is owing to nothing less than the hard hearts of the people listening to them. He makes it very clear that there is no innocent unbelief. There is no accidental unbelief. Any unbelief that we may have has its source in the depravity of the hearer and not in the failure of God to make the truth clear. And that's our rough outline for this morning. We're going to look at those two statements of Jesus in turn. We're also going to look at Luke's commentary on the crowd's reaction in verses 29 to 30, and we're going to take those in the order that Luke presents them. But first, let's ask the Lord's help this morning. Father, as we approach this text, we are humbled, Lord, to be in your word again, to be looking at the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the maker, the ruler of all creation, Lord, I pray that you would grant me grace this morning, that you would grant all who hear this grace this morning, Lord, to listen intently, to listen with soft hearts, and ultimately, Lord, to be encouraged, edified, and transformed. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin by looking at Jesus' first statement in verses 24 to 28. There we read, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. I think it's important that we don't miss the fact in verse 24 that it is only after John's disciples go that Jesus launches into the speech. Uh, these are things that Jesus could have said while John's disciples were present. These are things that Jesus could have said in their hearing. If and these are things that I think that John would have loved to have heard. If you are in prison and you are languishing with doubts or misgivings, hearing Jesus say in verse 28, among those born of women, there is none greater than John is probably something you'd want to hear. I know I would. But Jesus knows that what John needs is not an ego boost. He doesn't need to be made to feel good. What John needs is faith. 
What John needs is to be pointed to the Son of God through the Word of God. John's faith, the crowd's faith, our faith is deadly serious. What we believe about Jesus or what we fail to believe about Jesus is the most important thing in the world, full stop. So Jesus, for John's sake, deliberately waits until his disciples leave before he addresses the crowd. And in keeping with that ethic, when he does address the crowd, he leverages the opportunity provided by John's disciples to point out to the crowd their need for a savior. So here's what Jesus does. He begins by asking a few absurd rhetorical questions to the crowd about John. What did you go out the wilderness to see? Did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? Did you go see a man dressed in soft clothing? These are, these are absurd rhetorical questions. A reed shaken by the wind, you can imagine you know, a stick essentially being blown to and fro as the wind blows. Uh, someone who is like that is someone who is wishy-washy or uncertain or hesitant. They don't have any firmness to them. A man who is dressed in soft clothing is someone who lives in luxury, someone soft. And a wishy-washy, luxurious, soft man is the opposite of John the Baptist. He's a guy who lived most of his life in the desert. In Matthew 3, 4, he's described as wearing a garment, a camel's hair, and a leather belt around his waist. Uh, the, the, Matthew goes on to say that his food was locusts and wild honey. This is the opposite of luxury. And he certainly wasn't timid or wishy-washy or hesitant about his message either. Uh, this is what John preached, recorded for us in, in Matthew 3, verses 7 to 12. He says, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The ax is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear the, the threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's not the sermon of a timid man. And so in asking these questions, Jesus is building up John the Baptist for the crowd. John was a great man, is his point. And he was a prophet, which is where Jesus goes next. In verse 26, uh, he asks one more rhetorical question, pointing out to the people that they went out to see a prophet. But not just a regular prophet. This great man was more than simply a messenger from God, like Isaiah or Ezekiel or Samuel or Isaiah. John himself was the, uh, was the, the subject of prophecy. He was a prophesied prophet. He was a herald to the Messiah. That's what the passage Jesus cites in verse 27 is referring to. The herald's job was to go out before the king to make the people prepared for the king's arrival. John wasn't just talking to Israel on behalf of God. He was announcing and preparing for the coming of the Messiah. John was a special guy. And Jesus puts the, the cherry on top of this John Sunday in verse 28, again saying, among those born of women, none is greater than John. So in some sense, Jesus is saying that John the Baptist is the greatest human being who has ever lived. And I think looking in context at what Jesus is saying here, there are two areas, two categories in which he is talking about John's greatness. 
who John is and what John has done, John's pedigree and John's conduct. If you want to measure greatness by who someone is, John wins the prize. He is born to a priestly lineage in Israel. He is the cousin of the Messiah. He was the subject of a miraculous birth himself. He is a prophesied prophet, and he is a herald of the Messiah and the kingdom. No one in the Old Testament has a better resume than that. No one. If you want to measure greatness by how John lived his life, John was a righteous man. He lived in the wilderness, not caring about any of the things that this world has to offer. He lived off the land in full dependence on God. He was a prophet devoted to his God, and he was no hypocrite. He didn't preach turning from sin and then hypocritically engaging in it. John was a righteous man. Of course, he's not sinless, um, I, but I think Jesus is telling us here, if you take John the Baptist and you compare him to anyone else, John stands heads and shoulders better. John was more dedicated to God. John won more victories against the flesh. John was more upright in his life than anyone else. John was as great as a person can be, which is why the second half of verse 28 is such a huge blow to everyone who is listening. If John is as great as a person can be, yet the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. The least in the kingdom is greater than John. This is the climax of Jesus's first speech. John is the greatest who ever lived, and it's not good enough. The least person in the kingdom is greater than John was, which means, Jesus is saying to the crowds and to us, we simply do not measure up. No matter who you are, how you were born, what you've accomplished, how hard you've tried, how many rules you think you've obeyed, how much service to God you think you performed, you will not be able to exceed John the Baptist. And the crowds that Jesus is speaking to are Pharisees and lawyers, men who would be particularly happy to say that they were fit for the kingdom because of their own righteousness and their service to God. And Jesus tells them all very clearly, if John isn't good enough, neither are you. To be in the kingdom, you need to be clothed with the perfect righteousness of the Son of God. Entrance into the kingdom requires perfection. You cannot enter the kingdom with the slightest trace of sin or the least failure to keep God's commands. You, you cannot enter the kingdom of God because of who you are or what you've done. In fact, it is who you are and what you've done that will keep you from the kingdom. The only people fit for the kingdom are those who've had their sins washed away by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and have his perfect, sinless life credited to him as if it were theirs. And that is Jesus's message to the crowd in this first speech. <laughs> and I, I just want to take a second and kind of point out the brilliance of how Jesus did this. Um, yes, his main point is that as great as John is, it's not enough. The kingdom requires perfection. But in getting there, let's not miss the fact that Jesus reminded the people that they went to go see a prophet. And if they went to go see a prophet, guess what? They are accountable to having heard that prophet's men, uh, message of repentance and obeyed it. He reminds the people that John is the herald of the Messiah, which is a subtle reminder to the fact that he just declared himself to be that Messiah, the very savior that he is pointing them to in describing their need. There is, every word in this speech has meaning. There is not a wasted syllable. Every word is meant to call his people to repentance and faith. When I was 
studying through this, you know, there was a, there's a quote elsewhere in the New Testament that came to mind, and it's that no one ever spoke like this man. And it's true. This is a masterful speech. And yet, he is met with unbelief. He is met with unbelief. Which brings us to the crowd's reaction, our second section this morning in verses 29 to 30. In 29 to 30, we see the people's persistent unbelief. Now, these two verses are an insertion by Luke. He is telling us that there are two types of reactions to what Jesus just said about John and the kingdom. Verse 29 and 30 reads, When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So two groups here, uh, the regular people and tax collectors, they declared God just. If you have a New American Standard, it renders it, they acknowledged God's justice. In contrast with that group, we had the Pharisees and the lawyers uh, who, quote, rejected the purpose of God for themselves. Now, this isn't something that's happening out loud. I don't think the people shouted, God is just, in the same way I don't think the Pharisees shouted, we reject God's purpose for ourselves. This is something that is happening inside the hearts of the people who are listening. This is divine commentary. But notice that both of the reactions of the people are tied to their participation or non-participation in John's baptism. Now, we read in Matthew 3, in John's speech, that it was a baptism for repentance. John had come preaching to Israel that we have all disobeyed God's clear commands, that we all deserve to be punished for the least disobedience, uh, that the proper punishment for the least sin is an eternity of wrath and rejection by God, and that God is calling everyone to repent lest they suffer that faith. So when, when those people who went through John's baptism... Here, that entrance to the kingdom requires a righteousness greater than the greatest man who's ever lived, that it requires perfection itself. They acknowledge that God is right and just. They declare him to be correct. The regular people and the tax collectors acknowledge the righteousness of what Jesus is saying. The Pharisees and the lawyers, however, do not. They rejected John's baptism. They rejected the truths that John preached and they reject the one that John pointed to. And this, for us, should be absolutely shocking. I think sometimes we read through the New Testament enough and we see Jesus being rejected enough that we get desensitized to what's actually happening here. So I want to take a second and just really dial into that. What's happening here is the God who spoke the universe into existence is standing in front of his creation. He is standing in front of his creation and he is talking to them. The, the creator of the universe and the one who literally is holding together that creation moment by moment, molecule by molecule has condescended to step into that creation and talk to a portion of it. And these men, these tiny, insignificant specks of dust in an otherwise incomprehensibly vast and complicated universe have the gall to tell that creator that he is wrong. These men talking to the God who at that moment is, whole, is, is causing the atoms in their body to not cease to exist, tell that creator that they won't listen. 
that they won't obey, that they are better than he says they are, that his judgment about them is wrong. That's what's happening here. And this, this is the core of sin itself. This is what sin is in a nutshell. Every sin from the garden till today is really nothing less than this. It is the insignificant creature telling its infinite creator, I know better than you. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to go my own way. What is happening here is deeply, deeply evil. It is absurd, and it is deeply evil. And we shouldn't miss that. May it never be that we are so accustomed to seeing evil that we miss it for what it is. Let's remember when we read passages like this that the very fact that these men didn't die on the spot is nothing more than the grace and mercy of God. But this rejection, of course, isn't just absurd and evil. It is also unsurprising. Because these men, like all mankind, like us, by nature, apart from grace, are fundamentally, hopelessly broken. Apart from being recreated, apart from being born again, we will do nothing but reject our creator. This rejection of Jesus is both horrific and unsurprising. But it, does, it certainly does not surprise Jesus, being a prophet, being God. He knew what was going on in the hearts of the crowd. He knew where the people stood, especially the Pharisees and the lawyers. And so he launches into his second speech. In verses 31 to 35, Jesus is going to rebuke the people. He is going to make it clear that if there are any unbelieving hearts in the crowd, such unbelief is not rational and it certainly is not innocent. If anyone fails to repent and trust in Jesus as the Savior and King of Israel, as the Messiah, the fault is entirely their own. So again, that second statement, verses 31 to 35. Jesus says there, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man is coming, has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children." So this speech is a rebuke. It is a clear rebuke. Now, Jesus focuses this on the lawyers and the Pharisees who overtly rejected his message moments ago, just as they rejected John's. And in fact, that's actually the point he's making. The Pharisees refused to listen to John, and they are refusing to listen to Jesus. And in doing so, they are proving that the problem is not the message or the messenger. It is them. The problem is their hard hearts. Well, Jesus and John were prophets. Both were sent by the Father to preach. Both fulfilled their ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. Both loved the people that they preached to. But as much as they had in common, they lived very, very different lives. John abstained from all worldly comforts, apparently didn't even eat bread. Jesus was the opposite. He didn't abstain. He enjoyed the good things that were created. Not to excess, not sinfully, but he certainly enjoyed a good meal. So when John came, strict, austere, abstaining, the Pharisees accused him of having a demon, according to verse 33. 
when Jesus came, loving life, loving people, enjoying God's creation, they accused him of tolerating sin, of being a sinner himself in verse 34. Two very different approaches, but the exact same result, rejection. And Jesus' point here is brilliantly simple. He is saying to the Pharisees that God sent them two very different men and they rejected both. They found fault with both. And in doing so, they proved that the issue is really that they just don't like what God has to say. They just don't like the message. They don't like being told that they're wrong. They, they don't like being told that they stand accused before God, that they need to repent, that their blind, self-righteously legalistic lives will never earn a place in the kingdom that they, like everyone else, need forgiveness and mercy. The fact of the matter is, the Pharisees didn't want to listen. They viewed themselves as righteous, and so John's message of repentance was intolerable. They viewed anyone who did not follow in their self-righteous footsteps to be worthless. They treated them with contempt, and so they could not accept Jesus' message of mercy and grace. And they certainly could not comprehend a Messiah who did not immediately come on the scene and say, you guys are awesome, well done, come serve me. And so they rejected the Messiah. The problem isn't the message or the messenger, the problem is them. And sadly, despite Jesus testifying that he is the Messiah in verses 18 to 23, despite Jesus pointing to their need for a savior in 24 to 28, and despite this rebuke to the Pharisees, for their unbelief in these verses, their unbelief remained and their hard hearts stayed unrepentant. Now we know this because there's a text that follows this immediately. After this uh, encounter with the crowd, one of these Pharisees by the name of Simon invites Jesus to dinner. And it starts in verse 36. Listen to how this dinner went. Uh, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him and he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. The same self-righteousness that Jesus just rebuked is still there. The same contempt for others is still there. It is like Simon did not hear anything Jesus just said. He listened, but he didn't really hear. Because what Simon needed, what the Pharisees needed, what the rest of the crowd needed, what everyone needs is a new heart. There is no innocent unbelief. There is no one who can say, if only someone had explained it better. There is no one who can say, if only someone else had explained it to me, I would have believed. In this passage, Jesus eliminates both of those excuses. If we remain unbelieving and hard-hearted, the fault is simply our own. In conclusion, I want to go back to the reaction of the crowd. Um, it is clear that the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected what Jesus had to say here. Um, and the rebuke in 31 to 35 is primarily aimed at their hard hearts. But I think there is another kind of unbelief demonstrated here. It is far more subtle and just as deadly. 
is the unbelief of the rest of the people. Now, that may surprise you. After all, Luke said that the regular people and the tax collectors justified God, that they agreed with what Jesus said. Yes, they did. But notice that Luke doesn't say that they believed in Jesus, doesn't say that they repented. All Luke actually says is that they acknowledged the truth of what Jesus had said. And while the crowd did better than the Pharisees, I can't help but notice that Jesus' rebuke in verse 31 does not start with, to what shall I compare you Pharisees, but to what shall I compare the men of this generation? It seems to be a fairly universal rebuke. I take that to mean that the regular people and the tax collectors in the crowd share in Jesus' rebuke in some way. That while the Pharisees were the primary offenders, the crowd followed spiritually in their leader's footsteps. I take it to mean that the rest of the crowd may have agreed that no man can measure up to God's standards, but they didn't actually repent. They didn't actually put their trust in Jesus to be that perfect righteousness before God for them. This was an intellectual agreement only. They didn't beat their chest and say, God have mercy on me, a sinner. There was no godly sorrow. There was no desire to put off the things that offend God and to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And there was no resulting abiding, deep treasuring of Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The people in Luke 7 didn't outright reject what Jesus said. They came this close, but they never crossed a line in the sand that Jesus drew. And sadly, this is a common occurrence in the New Testament. We see this multiple times. People who say the right things, even temporarily follow Jesus, and then fall away. In John 6, 66, Jesus saw many of his own disciples walk away. These were men who up until that point had followed him around. They considered him their master. They had all the appearance of faith, but none of the substance. Judas looked just as pious as Peter, maybe more so, until the night in the garden where he betrayed Jesus. You can agree with Jesus. You can say nice things about Jesus and still not truly believe. And there are many, many who fit this description in our day and age. People who name the name of Christ but have never actually repented, who view Jesus as some sort of insurance policy against going to hell, who merely regret things that they have done in their life and confuse that with repentance, who are merely sorry over the consequences of their sins without any Godward focus. People who merely believe some right things about Jesus, people who use the right words or know the Sunday school answers, who may have grown up in a Christian household without faith of their own, but for whom Christianity is just another thing they've tacked onto their lives like a political affiliation or a marital status, who claim to believe in Jesus, but for whom Jesus is not the Lord and love of their life. Now, I hope there's no one here this morning or watching who fits that description, but if anyone does, please understand you have the exact same need as the Pharisees do to repent and to actually put your faith in Jesus. Now, fortunately for all of us, forgiveness is offered for even the hardest of hearts and the darkest of sins. And I want to end this morning by simply reading verses 41 to 50, which is the second half of that dinner story. This is Jesus having known Simon's horrible question that he asked in his own heart and mind. He answers Simon's unspoken disgust. At, being, at Jesus being touched by what Simon considered to be a worthless sinner. And here we see how Jesus deals with repentant sinners. We see the fruit of true faith. Verse 40. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. 
And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and another 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Amen. Let's pray.